Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet. Today's guest is O'Connor Professional Group's very own Director of Aging Services, Sam Van Calcaran. He has been a psychiatric nurse and since 2012 has been working with a variety of age populations ranging from infancy to aging, geriatrics. He works with a variety of people with different diagnoses, including neurocognitive disorders, complex mental health diagnoses, substance use, and other co-occurring disorders. We are thrilled to have him. He's a new member of our team. And what he brings to us is a rounding out of an expertise in geriatrics, which we have always been working with, but now we have the medical side covered as well. So I'd love to welcome you to this podcast, Sam. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here and very happy to join the O'Connor Professional Group. Thank you. So yeah. let's imagine, and this is not too far for many of our listeners and not too far for me, you have a parent and you live out of state and you're starting to notice some signs of cognitive decline and you decide that you're gonna to go to a medical appointment with them and they receive a diagnosis of either mild cognitive impairment or a neurocognitive disorder. They're on a new journey as their kids. What do we do now? Yeah, that's a so big this is question. A great, it's a big question, it's a great question. And it's also one that can be very challenging to both the child and the a person diagnosed with the mild cognitive disorder or dementia. Um, first, you wanna take advantage of the time. Now that you, it's, it's early on in the symptoms, so symptoms most likely are mild. So you wanna take advantage of that time. You can, um, look for a caregiver to help you navigate the system because one it's a very expensive um it's a very expensive system so you don't want to make mistakes uh so look for someone to help kind of guide you and your loved one through that time period and there are different things that you can do um you you also need to make sure that it's safe for your loved one to be living independently and most likely since it's early on it will be safe for them to be living independently but they need to have the right supports in place to do that. Um, also, what you wanna do is you wanna have a plan and you wanna include your loved one in that plan because this diagnosis um, can really strip someone's independence and take away their autonomy. So you wanna include your loved one in this plan, listen to their voices and really hear what they want for the remainder, remainder of their life. Um, and this is the time that you can have difficult conversations, uh, like if someone wants to have a DNI in place, like do not intubate, a DNR, do not resuscitate. If they want medical orders for life-sustaining treatments, so like a feeding tube or IV fluids. So these are going to be difficult conversations for you to have with your parent because you are kind of 
looking at the end of life for them. And it may not, it, and it may be way down the roads. As, as you know, mild cognitive impairment and any form of dementia is kind of called the long goodbye. So it's going to be a long journey, which is unfortunate. Um, and also when you're having these conversations, you want to kind of get everything together in, in order. So, you know, there are many suggestions that you, you make create a binder. So with medications, their medical history, their diagnoses, what tests were involved to make this this determination. You can get all your like legal information together. Um, also just list of medications, list of emergency contacts. So have that all together. That way, whoever is supporting your loved one because you're out of state will be able to have that information readily available if any emergencies were to happen. That's great. That's solid advice. What are the benefits of hiring somebody as a care partner in this process? I would imagine that many of us, you know, with college degrees and are educated, think, you know, I can figure this out. I can buy a few books. I can go online and I'll figure out the next best memory care unit for her. Yeah. So, no, I. The, the benefits of having a, it's it's really important to have a, a care a care partner if if you can afford one. Um, the care partner is going to be experienced in this in this stage. They're going to help you navigate the system. And like I had mentioned before, it's a really expensive system where mistakes are easily made. So you may be doing your research and you'll think, oh, I found this great place, or this is a, a, a person that I can contact, and and you'll go down that path, and then you'll realize, no, this was not the right path for my loved one. Um, and also you'll experience along the ways, most likely um, inappropriate placements or in a, uh, hot, unnecessary hospitalizations and having a care partner along this journey with you can help you kind of be your touch touchstone and, and prevent all that from happening. Yeah. Let's imagine yeah. that they have, they, this family, you, me has had mm -hmm. the wherewithal and the resources to retain and engage a care partner in this process. What are the some of the misconceptions that this care partner is going to disabuse the family of in those first initial meetings? What is yeah. that conversation like a fly on the wall likely to look like? So I want to mention that um, the diagnosis of dementia, everyone experiences these, these symptoms differently. So if I were to be diagnosed with dementia and you were di be, to be diagnosed with dementia, it's going to be different for both of us. Um, so one common misconception is that a person with dementia cannot live at home independently. So this is not true. Um, they can live at home independently, but with the right supports in place. And a care partner will help you kind of identify what those supports are. And you want to make sure that the person's safe to be at home. You know, research shows that someone with dementia live a happier, longer life at home, but again, they need to have the right supports in place. Another misconception that family members uh, may think is that their loved one can no longer work. Now, it really depends on the profession of the person who's just diagnosed, but for many, people can continue working, but again, you just have to have the right supports in place. Uh, and another common misconception is that people with dementia cannot speak for themselves. Now, as a, as a caregiver myself, when I'm working with a family, 
Uh, I see family members try to make decisions for their loved one when that loved one with dementia is capable of making those decisions. And that further takes away the autonomy. And what we often see is that person starts to get aggravated or agitated because they can make these decisions. They're, they've been living their life, their whole life making decisions. And now their child is taking that away from them. And this disease has taken that away from them. So you want to respect their autonomy and really adjust the way that you communicate with the loved one. Um, some examples of this, you know, speak slowly, speak clearly. You want to give limited options to them, give them choices, and also give them time to respond. That makes sense. Do you, in some situations, I would imagine that you would plant a seed with a question and then say, I'm going to follow back up with you, take some a few minutes, think about it, and then repose the question? Yes, would you can do helpful? that. Yeah, yeah. You can repose the question to the person. Also, if, if you can guide the conversation with the person as well. Um, Early on, the symptoms most likely are not as severe, so you can have those conversations. But as the disease progresses, when you're working with someone with dementia and you're asking questions, you want to just, again, guide the conversation but limit choices. You know, the most, what we, when you're get, helping someone get ready or dress for the day, you want to offer them options to wear what clothes they want to wear. So when you're putting that out, you can just, you know, as a green sweater, or do you want to wear the blue sweater today and not a whole array of options? And when you're also um, discussing food, what they want to have for lunch, uh, don't just walk to someone, oh, what do you want to have for lunch right now? Or, and that's, they're, they're not going to know how to respond if they're further along in the disease process. So ask them, you know, what would you like a sandwich, a chicken sandwich today or tuna sandwich? Just something that, you know, they have limited options and then they can easily pick from. So throughout the process, as long as they are able, they get to make the decisions or have input in those decisions. Yes. And yeah. that titrates down, I would imagine, in importance of those decisions as the disease progresses. Oh, yeah, most definitely. So that person who comes into that doctor's appointment with their mom gets this early diagnosis, they leave that appointment and all of a sudden they start feeling like they're going to take charge. What, what do you recommend to that child who just heard that news that yeah. their mother is going or father is going to be on this journey? What's the first mm -hmm. bit of advice you would offer? Take a breath. First, breathe. Let the information digest. And then also reach out to family, friends, contacts. Like th there's a stigma that we don't talk about dementia or neuro neurocognitive disorders, but most likely you'll have someone or know someone who's gone through this before. So reach out to someone, do some research. Um, you can look for, again, a care partner, find someone just to have a conversation with uh, to help kind of guide you for the next steps. But it's really important to remember that, you know, you don't want to rush into anything. You don't want to make any decisions under the gun. And again, this early diagnosis is a great time to take advantage uh, to get all your ducks in a row. So just breathe, take time. And involve your loved one in the conversations as well. That's really important to really understand what their needs and wants are. That makes perfect sense to me. I would imagine that those folks with significant financial resources and a declining cognitive 
capacity would be targets for manipulation and for you know basically taking advantage of how do we as family members help them not be in that position yeah so even um someone without an older person without dementia um is can be a target of financial abuse um you know if someone has cognitive impairments if they are lonely if they um, have physical ailments where they need help with daily like assisted ADLs um, activities of daily living those people are at higher risk of being um, exploited financially so what families can do is they need to educate themselves on different types of financial scams these can include um, lottery scams um, telemarketing scams home mortgage scams also even it can happen in, inside the family so maybe you are an older sibling living out of state and you kind of are the are the you know the 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 family lead um and you have a younger sibling living near the family who may uh have other their own issues going on and take advantage of your loved one at that time they may have you know abuse their atm card or have them write checks or pressure them to make payments for them so what families can do is really you know educate yourself on these scams you can uh have the your loved ones simplify their financial assets simplify banks if they have multiple banks you know limit limit that down um, talk with the a financial advisor um, you can also talk to the financial institutions to see have one to two trusted people put onto the account or have the financial institution reach out to that person if there is question of a, of a high charge or expense um, and also you can set someone up to review like on a regular basis expenses in the accounts to make sure that there's nothing um, suspicious going on thank you that's really good practical advice question about the crossover between a dementia and a psychiatric admission i would imagine that there is some crossover when somebody is in a diagnosis that there may be situations where their symptoms become psychiatrically acute. Mm -hmm. What are yeah. what happens when somebody goes into the hospital on a psych admission? Yeah, so this is one area where you really want someone to be able to advocate for your loved one. So if you're living out of state uh, and your loved one goes into a hospital system, you really want someone there to advocate for them. You know, many of my for most of my career, I was working on inpatient psychiatric settings, working with all different populations, um, working on geriatric inpatient psych units. And we would see this a lot. Uh, we'd see, you know, uh, someone who was living maybe in an assisted living uh, community um, start to develop psychiatric symptoms that that assisted living community was not able to handle. Uh, there's, I mean, they're, they're, they're probably, I'm sure that they were getting amazing care, but the assisted living communities, independent living communities can only handle so much and they're only set up to handle so much and they may not even have the staff to provide the support. So when you're in an assisted living and you start to develop psych or display psychiatric symptoms and it becomes unsafe for you or the resident where you need to be kind of on a one-to-one -one observation, that's when usually the assisted living will send a loved one to the emergency department for, for care. Um, and this could be avoided if you had the right supports in place. You could have an advocate um, contacted and come support the loved one uh, and help prevent that because 
once someone gets put into the system, you have you don't have much control over that. So say a loved one is admitted to the emergency department. And first, this is going to be really confusing to your loved one because it's a strange environment. There's going to be lots of noise. It's going to be chaotic. So it's going to be really stressful for them. And when someone with dementia is stressed, they're in a new environment, they may start to act out and start to display signs of aggression. So at this point, what may happen is um, the providers, the medical staff in the emergency department may medically uh, restrain your loved one by giving them a medication to sedate them. So as we know that once you provide medications to someone and you're sedating them, that's going to be a whole other host of problems. Um, someone becomes now even more of a high fall risk. Um, they may have an adverse reaction to the medication that you're giving. Uh, and also from you know placement standpoint, going back to the assisted living, when they see a restraint, they're more hesitant to take that person back. Um, so if we'll go back to when they're in the ED, so now they're, they're going to be, de be deemed that they need to go inpatient to an inpatient psychiatric setting, um, and they're going to be committed most likely against their will because they're not going to have the capacity to sign themselves in. So every state's different, but here in Massachusetts, we have what's called the Section 12. So the person's involuntarily committed against their will for 72 hours, three business days. So that person will be admitted to an inpatient psych department that has a connection with the with the emergency department. And they may be in a hospital system that is, doesn't have the best reputation um, that you don't want them to be in. So again, this is when some, if you have a care partner, they can come to the emergency department, help advocate for your loved one to take them to um, an inpatient setting that you prefer and they have the contacts to those hospitals to make those make that happen um, but once they get admitted to the inpatient setting you're kind of just you're you're in a holding pattern because the psychiatric provider has again up to three business days to assess them for safety they may do medication adjustments um, again this is a new environment for your loved one and it can be scary, just like in the emergency department, and they may start to be show aggressive behaviors because they're trying to protect themselves. They don't know where they are. They're very confused. And again, in this type of setting, most likely aggression or assaultive behaviors is going to lead to a restraint. It can be a medication restraint, a physical restraint um, where someone's holding your loved one, or a mechanical restraint where they're actually being like held down by a device. Uh, and again, when the we're working on discharge for that loved one back to the assisted living or wherever they're going if they're moving in if they're in an independent living or a memory care unit when they see the restraint episodes and the progress notes they're going to be more hesitant to take that back so that your loved one's going to stay longer on an inpatient psychiatric setting which is not the right setting for that person that's terrifying and i can imagine as symptoms escalate because of their terror the length of stay mm -hmm. increases. Yeah, and I actually saw it one time, we had a, a patient um, at a sister hospital, she was an inpatient, on an inpatient psychiatric unit, had a um, diagnosis of Alzheimer's, had come from an assisted living community um, because she was just kind of displaying aggressive behaviors. They couldn't handle her symptoms. Um, so she was admitted to the inpatient unit and again, displaying these behaviors uh, and 
the hospital, the staff, they medicated her and she was already a, a, at this age, a high fall risk. And she was in a, using a wheelchair and she, with, with Alzheimer's, you know, it was hard to redirect. And she was in the dining room and she stood up, fell, ended up breaking her hip, breaking her wrist so that she was admitted to the medical side, which extended her hospital stay. And then there's a whole host of compl- complications that can come from that. And actually for her, it led to pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Luckily, she was you know recovered from that, but it's just it's a journey that you don't want to go down if it can be prevented. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, part of the issue that I hear from family members is that when the person struggling doesn't have acceptance or refuses to see or whatever, for whatever reason, doesn't acknowledge their own diagnosis. What do family members do then? Yeah, so this is challenging and you really have to put yourself in that person's shoes. You know, I always, when I work with families or I always try to think, put myself in their shoes and how are they feeling? Um, Cause I know I'm very highly independent. Uh, and if I were to have it where I lost capacity and I, you know, became incontinent or, or had to, had, had to have help getting dressed or taking care of my ADLs, I would be humiliated. I would be so embarrassed. Um, but that's also the families feel that as well. The person, the caregiver can feel embarrassment to have to take care of your, your parent in the situation. Um, so it's important. You need to have patience, uh, because this diagnosis represents uh, loss of independence and a loss of autonomy. Um, so if that stubbornness could represent a way for them to hold on to control that they have left. Uh, so the family members need to be really patient. This is a great time, you know, to seek support, outside support, outside advice from fit from friends, other family members. Again, um, if you're in the, if you're able to afford a care partner, this is a great opportunity to get someone on board because they can help you navigate this arena. They can provide family coaching to you. They can help have these difficult conversations. They can work with the, with the parents to help them explain the diagnoses. They can look at all the information and really develop a plan that both you feel comfortable with, the family feels comfortable with, and the loved one can hopefully accept and feel on board with. And the goal should be to keep that family member in place at home for as long as possible to help them just age with grace and dignity. Um, and again, you know, having them age in place is going to help them have a happier, longer life. Um, but just you just need the right supports. Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate all of your wisdom and advice today and some of the just concrete tools that we can use when we have a loved one struggling with a new diagnosis or an old diagnosis that involves dementia. Appreciate you yeah. joining me today. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thanks. And for my audience, thanks for joining this episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you found this enlightening, interesting, or even entertaining, please like us on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.